welcome to episode number 45 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and my wondrous co-host, Vala Offshore, is off in Aruba. And he's in transit as we speak, and probably to the consternation of his family, if he's able to make it to the place he's going in time, he'll be joining us midstream. But the show will go on, and our guest today is a very interesting man, David Bray, who is the Chief Information Officer of the Federal Communications Commission. Hi, David. Hi, Michael. How are you? Good me. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you have an interesting job, and very excited to, to talk with you today. David, let's dive in and start by telling us about your career path and the FCC, and how did you end up being the CIO at the FCC? That's a great question. Uh, in terms of career path, I guess I've always looked for assignments where there is both a need to serve as well as an interesting challenge. Uh, I once had someone tell me that I seem to enjoy being the underdog, so I seem to pick those assignments. Uh, with the FCC, I actually literally went through the usajobs.gov application process, and after four rounds, they selected me. Uh, but in terms of my actual career path, uh, I was crazy enough to start working for government when I was 15. Uh, that required me to get a work permit, and that was at a Department of Energy facility doing some networking and some computer uh, engineering. And after that, I uh, worked for a while at the Department of Agriculture. This was pre-Netscape Navigator. Uh, with a Mosaic browser, if folks remember that, and Gopher and Archie protocols. And then after that, worked at the Department of Defense, uh, National Institutes for Health, and then spent some time with Microsoft and Yahoo, only to choose to come back to public service in about 2000. Uh, signed up for a little-known program called the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program at the CDC. Uh, did that for about five years. Uh, was actually supposed to on September 11, 2001, at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, a few of us were supposed to brief both the FBI and the CIA as to what we would do if a biotin event happened. Uh, we clearly didn't get to give that briefing because the world changed that day. Uh, and the state of information sharing was such that we literally piled computers into cars and uh, drove them somewhere else to deal with the response. Uh, about five years later, after working at the CDC, went to get a PhD, uh, then came back to government service, uh, volunteered to Afghanistan, spent some time with the intelligence community, and now I'm here at FCC. Wow. So, so you were in government, you went to Silicon Valley, went to government, went overseas, came back. Uh, tell, us, tell us about the FCC. Let's start there. So, so what is the FCC? Right. So the Federal Communications Commission is an independent government agency, which means it's both reportable to the president as well as to Congress, but in some respects it's sort of freer than other departments and agencies in which there's a report to a department secretary that then reports to the president. Uh, it was started in 1934. Uh, previously it was called the Federal Radio Commission. In 1934 the Telecommunications Act made it the Federal Communications Commission. And basically it is charged with working with the private sector as partners uh, on regulating the public infrastructure, both wired and wireless, and uh, has been doing that since 1934. It is actually 100% fee-based, and so actually all our funds come from either the auctions we do of Spectrum or the licenses to use that Spectrum that we uh, work to actually convey with the private sector. And what is the role of 
IT inside the FCC? How big an organization? How many? What's your budget? How many employees? What's the role of IT? And what does the CIO actually do inside that agency? That's a great question. So um, I've, I've only recently arrived. I arrived about now, I guess, maybe five months ago. And in my listening and learning, FCC is about 1,754 people. So it's not that big. We're less than 1,800 people. Um, yet we have 18 bureaus and offices, and each one is slightly different. Uh, some do uh, interfaces with uh, consumers. Other ones do interfaces with the wireline. Uh, other ones do it with the wireless industry. And of those 18 bureaus and offices, we have a total of right now 207 different IT systems, which I jokingly say I feel like I'm Oprah Winfrey. Uh, you get a system, you get a system, everyone gets a system, because we're at the ratio of about one system for every nine people. And more than 40% of them are more than 10 years old, again, owing to the fact that we were created in 1934. Uh, fortunately, we don't have any COBOL, uh, but we do have some other interesting languages that have been accumulated over time. And the role of the CIO is really to try and coordinate across those different 18 bureaus and offices uh, to make sure we can do the business of the FCC, which are the auctions that we use to, uh, to uh, auction off spectrum with the private sector, as well as do the licenses that we do. And there's many different types of licenses we handle. Uh, also handle consumer complaints and interface with the industry on that. So in terms of budget, the FCC itself is about, last count, about $390 million, uh, of which about 20% of that is for IT. Uh, the next, obviously the largest overhead is for people, the second largest being 20% for IT. And uh, this year we're going to really try to be focusing on both helping out with what the chairman, we just had a new chairman, Tom Wheeler, arrive, wants to do in terms of reforming the processes. We have a lot of legacy non-IT processes that could be improved. Obviously IT is a part of it, but we want to make sure we actually think about the non-IT process informants and then think about how IT can help that. We also want to try and think about how we can actually you know, strengthen our resiliency uh, obviously, that's a big issue because obviously FCC plays a role if a really bad day was ever occur. Um, and then also just think about how we can better engage citizens as well as the private sector. Uh, we want to make sure that you know we're actually engaging them as partners, that they have access to our data. We want to have more openness in our data. And um, particularly, I'm particularly interested into what can we do that would actually engage citizens to actually take the lead in some of these areas, so we don't have to be always reliant on the government to do everything in this area. So you're, you're talking about both uh, IT processes and non-IT processes, and you're saying that IT should play a role in improving, reforming both of those. Yes. In fact, there's a wonderful quote from Peter Druckert which says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can have the best IT strategy in the world, but if we don't take into account the different cultures of the different organizational units and, and where we want to go with that uh, as partners, then the best IT in the world won't really matter. It really is about 80%, 90% people, only 10 to 20% about technology. Well, that's a strange thing for a technologist to say. Uh, well, my background, again, my father's a Methodist minister. My mom's a school teacher. Uh, my wife, actually, my wife's a nurse, a nurse practitioner, and she said she married me for technical support. I guess I'm surrounded by people that remind me it's really about the people each day, and then the technology is there to actually make our lives helpful, more helpful, easier, and more productive. So, so, so what is the involvement of IT in this process change? How does IT get involved? Right. So one of the things that I've, uh, when I came in is, so back in the 90s, each of the different bureaus and offices had their own IT unit. And each of the IT units were fairly autonomous, which made sure that they could actually meet the immediate needs of their own office, which was about 100 or 120 people but it really didn't have an enterprise view across the FCC, and in some cases there may have been duplicative systems being built or redundancies. 
So in the 2000 period, uh, again prior to my arrival, they tried to consolidate it into one place. Uh, that had the advantage of getting efficiencies and actually coordination, but it left the bureaus and offices feeling a little bit estranged as to their IT needs. And so I'm now trying to strike that balance between having a decentralized and centralized approach and having the different bureaus and offices have what I call intrapreneurs, so they're entrepreneurs on the inside that are really dedicated IT liaisons to each of the bureaus and offices that are there to be both a single point of contact as to all the IT activities that are going on in their bureau and are actually empowered to actually help you know, be problem solvers. Uh, we don't want IT to be the place where you go, you make a request, and maybe we'll get back to you in about two or three weeks. We really actually want to be involved with you every step of the way in trying to solve problems and actually modernizing our infrastructure. So, so that's trying how we're trying to actually help with the different cultures. So, so in order to do that, uh, to create that culture of entrepreneurs, as you say, it strikes me that it would require a, a pretty significant culture shift among at least some employees of the agency. Oh, yes, you're, you're absolutely right, and it's going to probably be a one-and-a-half to two-year culture shift, which we've just started. Uh, part of it is, is encouraging people to actually be empowered to make decisions, that you know, not everything has to come up to the CIO. Uh, my style is generally I try to set here are the general boundary conditions and then within that space you're free to come up with the solutions in that space. Here's the goal that we're aiming for, but I'm not going to tell you explicitly how to go from point A to point B to point C. You're actually empowered to work with the bureaus and offices. And I'm really trying to sort of set that sort of empowerment of the different people in the IT team. It's actually kind of unique for government because government's really more used to top down. But one of the things that I saw when I was with the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program when we responded to 9-11, when we responded to anthrax, and then later other events, is that in our changing world where things are changing so fast, that if you try to be top-down, uh, you're going to be out of date, and you're not going to actually be relevant to what actually is happening on the edge. Mm -hmm. And so really what I'm trying to espouse more for government is more of a sort of bottoms-up approach, where we actually empower the edge, and really the role of a CIO is to be more of a facilitator and a cultivator as opposed to a direct sort of manager, per se. So the idea of the CIO as facilitator, so you're relatively new to the agency, but you've worked in government for, for many years. Yes, it's been about 20 years, and so FCC, only been there for about five months, but been in several other circumstances, as I mentioned, IT chief with the Bioterrorism Program at the CDC, worked some with the Department of Defense and the intelligence community, and it's interesting because, well, each part of government is unique, they still have the same challenges. Uh, I often tell people that governments, you know, I know we've had interesting conversations with sequestration, uh, with people's confidence in government. I often tell people that government is not broken. It's actually doing exactly what it was designed to do. Uh, we designed our governments because we were afraid of a king. And if you go back to Federalist Papers number 51, they actually wanted ambition to counter ambition. There's that wonderful phrase that says, if all men were angels, no government would be necessary. And so it's about trying to create these checks and balances that often result in what, what people might accuse as being bureaucratic friction is really trying to prevent any one person from seizing too much power, too much control, or changing things too quickly. And that probably worked well until the 1990s, but now that we actually have issues that span sectors and span government agencies, in addition to working with the private sector, we've got to think about how do we continue to have those checks and balances for our representative democracy, but also have a responsive government. And I think that is actually the dialogue that I really wish were actually occurring more in the uh, public sector as well as with the private sector and saying, you know, we want to be responsive, we want to be adaptive, but we also want to prevent sort of what we were worried about in the 1700s, which was the rise of a king-like individual. And so how do we do checks and balances at the same time have a responsive, adaptive government for the people, 
I think part of the solution is actually empowering citizens to do more and not always being reliant on all the things that happen here in D.C. Well, the crowd certainly agrees with that. Uh, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, so, so you've been there now for five months, and I'm just inside large uh, corporations in the private sector. When there's a an innovative disruptor, very often what happens is what I might call the corporate antibodies. Oh yes, come out, come out <laughs> to play the forces of resistance. And, and I have to believe that since uh, the FCC is populated by people uh, who are resistant to change, naturally resistant to change, much as in the private sector, that you must face this as well. So to what extent is this an issue and how do you, how do you address it? How do you deal with it? I guess if you can offer advice, since you're in the middle of it, offer advice to people who are facing this inside their own jobs. CIA. Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it's not, like you said, it's, it's, it's in the private sector, it's in the public sector. I mean, anytime you have large numbers of humans, there are going to be those that are going to be early adopters, but then, as we all know, there's also going to be those that are resistant to change and may even be wanting to have things say the way they are. Um, I guess my first piece of advice is to distinguish between leadership and management, uh, and we often don't. And so leadership is when you step outside of expectations, uh, whereas management, you're meeting expectations. And we can't always lead, because if you're always stepping outside of expectations, you're not actually meeting any of the criteria you need to do. But if you're always managing in today's environment, you're going to fall behind as well. So knowing when you need to be a leader and when you need to be a manager, I think that's the first part. But then the second part is recognizing, and actually I'm fond of saying this, that the, the Greek word leet is the root of leadership. And leets were the ones that carried the flags in front of an army in a melee conflict. And it means to send unto death. Because if you were carrying the flag in a melee conflict and you came across another army, guess what? You're going to be the first to die. And so as a leader, you need to think about strategies that manage that friction such that you and nobody else really die. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think of great leaders like Nelson Mandela, his most challenging moment was actually when he turned around to the African National Congress and said, we are actually going to make peace with the white minority in, Afghan in, in, sorry, in Africa. And that was an interesting challenge. Same thing is Zach Rabin, it was actually when he was actually trying to make peace with the Palestinians that a fellow Israeli actually killed him. And so I have to be mindful of both my support base as well as those that may actually be resistance to change. How do we actually all come together? I think that's really key to anyone that's actually trying to create change. And think about it as mentally donning your flak jacket. I mean, I often tell my team my job is to be both their flak jacket as well as their digital diplomat so that they can actually do innovative stuff, but I'll take the bullets for them when they actually try to make that change. And then the last piece, and I actually would just point out, uh, my father, again, being a Methodist minister, we actually talk about how church and government are the same, maybe any large organization. Uh, people mean well. Uh, they're generally there for the right reasons. They're altruistic. Uh, you really can't fire anybody any well, very well. It's usually more of a volunteer organization. But recognize there's going to be huge differences in the narratives and the stories that we're trying to all bring together for what we're trying to do. So you're talking about uh, transformation. And let me, let me actually just tell everybody that we are speaking with David Bray, who is the Chief Information Officer at the Federal Communications Commission. And if you have questions, this is a great time to get access to a government, a government leader, unfiltered. Well, filtered by me, but that's not much of a filter. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much unfiltered. Uh, so it's a rare opportunity. So ask questions using the hashtag CXOTalk. And we do have a question from Twitter from Frank Scavo, who is an excellent industry analyst. And he's saying, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, this, this transformation and empowering entrepreneurs, but 
don't the FCC systems need to be pretty much the same across all bureaus and offices? So I guess the question is, how do you balance the desire for uh, change and flexibility with this need for consistency? That's a great question. And I think the goal is, if we can actually understand the workflows of the different bureaus and offices, because they are different workflows, we may actually be able to identify reusable modular components of those workflows. And so that I can actually be in a role of being a choice architect with the bureaus and offices where I say to them, look, we understand this is the workflow you want to improve or the workflow you want to do. Um, if you want, we have these reusable modular components that will reduce your production time by five months and save you maybe $150,000. Or if you truly think you're unique, we can actually you know, spend the extra effort, spend the extra money, but it's going to cost more money and we may not have that money. And so it's actually a choice that they can make as to whether they want to reuse or build their own path. The other thing is, and we see this already happening within Silicon Valley, as long as you have a consistent platform, what you build on top of that can be unique. But the platform itself, the data layer, is the one thing that's actually persistent and actually more relevant. UIs are going to come and go. Code is going to come and go. But the data and the platform that we're trying to build at the FCC is consistent. So that way we can allow for sort of a diversity of how things get done, diversity of workflows across the FCC. So you're talking about uh, platforms, and you're talking about silicon. <laughs> I don't know if that's meant to be like Pee Wee uh, Herman, where we're supposed to scream when it's the magic word, or what. But uh. <laughs> well, I'm get well, I'm getting pressure from Twitter to use the sound effects. All right, sounds like it. Good. <laughs> and Let's you know we're we're audience driven here. So you're talking about use about uh, platforms, and so therefore let's let's uh, talk about cloud. Okay. Another buzzword, sure, no problem. Yeah, let's 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 stay with the buzzwords for right now. So, so what are your thoughts on cloud? Well, personally, for an for a agency as small as the FCC, again, only being eighteen hundred people, I really think where technology is sort of accelerating and the trends are, we really should not be in the business of maintaining our own infrastructure. It really is just not something that our forte is. Our forte is more working with the private sector on telecommunications, wired and wireless. And so sort of the long-term push where possible when we modernize these 10-year or older systems is to have them be hosted actually as a cloud service and actually have it be that we actually have a data mart that actually builds indices across these different systems so we can find relevant data, even if it's being hosted by a different cloud provider, uh, and actually be able to actually provide that as a service that then the private sector as well as individuals can build on top of. Uh, we did actually launch most recently about four months ago, if I can give a shout-out, for the FCC speed test app, and that is an app that is open source. It's currently on Android, and iOS should be coming out within the next week, ideally, uh, once, I, once everything gets approved. But that app you can actually download, and actually three times a day it'll check your broadband speed. It'll provide you the results, but then also anonymously report that to a third party that then shares that with the FCC cloud so that we can actually build a real-time crowdsource map of broadband connection speeds by provider across the country, which can actually then maybe nudge people to actually be consistent when they promise you a certain speed, now it can actually be visualized across the United States. Wow. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, and the goal is to actually encourage more things to be citizen-led like that. I mean, that was one thing that we did. But the reality is if we have an API and we expose that API and we actually have a data mart that can send and receive data, it could be that citizens actually think of other apps, and maybe it's on that infamous topic of net neutrality, which I claim, again, I'm a non-political, that's the decision of the five congressionally appointed commissioners about net neutrality, but you might think about what are things that we as citizens can do that don't rely on government having to always be the ones that have all the answers, because the reality is we're all in this together. It's citizens, it's the private sector, and it's the public sector working together. 
Well, how can citizens, let's, let's talk about this for a moment, how can citizens influence the policy, say, say related to net, net neutrality, in any meaningful way? I think your average person sort of looks at it as being a large bureaucracy completely out of their control and in the hands of uh, government and the large cable companies. Right. So I think the first step is sort of just one having dialogue about it. But we want to make sure that dialogue is data-driven. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, I mean, your smartphone nowadays has more computing power available to it than President Reagan ever had when he was President of the United States, which is pretty impressive when you think about it. You have something that was more powerful than the computers were in the Pentagon in the 1980s. And so thinking about what can that device then collect and share, again, recognizing that we want to protect privacy and we also want to make sure things are anonymous, but actually having that then be data that drives decisions, I think that's a really powerful force to bring some rationality to the discussion and actually then have that influence what are the best ways forward in this area. And so what are some of the other things that you're doing to engage or empower citizens with the FCC or with the government? Well, I think that's just sort of beginning the sort of, again, uh, so just, right, just beginning the dialogue of what can we do to make our data more open uh, and making our website more accessible. I've sort of inherited a website that I think drastically needs some work on it and hopefully we'll work on that. It's been a long history. But working to make sure that we present things in a UI that's easy for humans but then also have an API that's good for machines. Uh, we do have this national broadband map that gets about 100,000 human visitors a month, but interestingly enough, gets more than 10 to 15 times that in terms of machine-to-machine -machine transactions. Uh, companies have learned to use it for looking up sort of broadband speed by zip code and things like that. So thinking about, can the FCC become this broker of both data coming in and data going out that then is consumed by the public sector and the private sector, and what would be the data that we most want to have available? So let's, uh, let's talk, we were talking a little bit about the cloud. Let's bring in social and mobile. And so what is your agenda for that? And you might as well uh, link in at the same time uh, BYOD, since that's obviously very connected as well. Right. So uh, FCC, in my opinion, should really be leading the way in the area of secure mobility for our own workforce. Uh, after all, we are the Federal Communications Commission. And so we have renewed an investment to try and get to where we can actually do bring your own device and actually have a secure VMware kernel that would allow your virtual desktop to be wherever you are, be it on your home PC, be it on your home tablet. You could, in theory, do it on your smartphone, although having a desktop on your smartphone might be a little hard to read. Um, and really sort of empowering the workforce to do that. And so that's actually something we're aiming for to start doing this spring and rolling it out. We're currently in beta testing. Uh, just to show how sort of fortunate we are at the FCC, our chairman, Tom Wheeler, saw the beta, and he's actually a very savvy IT guy, uh, and actually said he wanted to be in the beta, which is probably uh, both a moment of joy for any CIO as well as a moment of, oh dear, my top boss wants to be in the middle of our beta. But, you know, that's the great thing that we have at the FCC is we have a chairman as well as four other commissioners that actually get IT. Um, in terms of the FCC, we also have field offices and trying to think about how can we sort of go beyond just having brick and mortar. In fact, brick and mortar, as we all know, is something that Amazon is definitely disrupting on the book side and beyond. And what can we do the same thing at the FCC that would allow our different field officers that are looking at you know, complaints involving Spectrum, resolving issues involving Spectrum, so they could actually truly be mobile workers with all the technology they need, but wouldn't necessarily have to work out of an office building so they could be anywhere, anytime, securely. And so we're trying to push that forward. Of course, the challenge is, as always, government in addition to the private sector. When you get to large companies, we are always a target. And, uh, and so being aware of what we can also do to make things, things are secure in addition to being mobile. 
Does the fact that the FCC is a relatively small organization, you said with 1,800 uh, people, does it make it easier to push these kinds of changes? Yes, and in fact that's probably why I took on this assignment for one of the reasons was you can actually realistically get results within about 18 to 24 months. Larger organizations, not saying you can't do it, but it's obviously a harder issue. Um, and I often am fond of saying that when you're trying to change your bureaucracy, it takes a network of people. And so the same thing is going to be true at the FCC. You know, we'll overcome resistance by having a network of people that are all working together to try and actually create culture change. Now, let's talk about social for a minute. I'm reacting to somebody on Twitter who's saying, no, don't bring out social. <laughs> <laughs> we, met, we met on Twitter, and I would say most of our communications, which, is, which have been quite numerous, have been direct messages on Twitter. So you're, you're extremely responsive pretty much day and night. Yes. Uh, much probably to the chagrin of my wife, but anyway, um, yes, I, I think it's, 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 it's when you accept the mantle of public service, uh, there's a wonderful quote by uh, Thomas Jefferson that says, you know, it should involve great sacrifice, and part of that is making myself available uh, for thoughts that people have, and so um, I'm available on Twitter. I expressly made sure that the, you know, the, the user ID was FCC CIO, so you understand that I'm representing my role. Not, you know, these are not necessarily my own personal views per se. Um, although I think I try to embody everything I do personally. Equally on the blog, we recently did a blog last week uh, where we actually opened up by doing a storyboard of what we were looking for for those field offices with secure mobility so that people can actually chime in with thoughts. Uh, again, I, I don't pretend that government has all the answers, but we can begin to ask these questions and see what both the public sector, public citizens, as well as the private sector have to answer. I think that's really the key to surviving and moving forward as a 21st century representative democracy. Uh, David, you know, what you're talking about is pretty amazing, but at the same time, I find myself being a little bit skeptical mm -hmm. in some regards because the, you know, the, the, the pace of government IT in general is so slow and operationally, not, not talking about the FCC now, but just in general, operationally, so many IT projects in the government fail, go over budget, and it seems like it's an impossible hairball sometimes to untangle. So, so maybe can you tell us uh, first just some of the, the challenges that you face in striving to drive a style of innovation that is decidedly uh, private sector in tone. So maybe tell, share some of the challenges with sure. that. Sure. I mean, I think you're right to be skeptical. Uh, there are days when I, when I stop myself and I go, oh boy, what did I just sign up for? But I think the answer there is if we don't try to do it, then we just have resigned ourselves to you know, status quo. And I think, I think we're at this point where things are almost at the breaking point that if we don't try something new, the entire system will collapse under its own weight. And so I think this is a good time to try and be that disruptor. Um, but again, it's going to take a network. So in terms of challenges, it's just, again, recognizing that government was designed to keep turf, to have boxes, and to not have those boxes be commingled so that any issue that cuts across it horizontally is going to hit huge resistance. And I think that's very true for IT because IT is horizontal in nature. I mean, throughout my career, uh, back when I was at the CDC, when I was back at the Department of Energy, there would be these people that say, get back in your box. And I said, well, I like being outside of my box. And so you just have to be willing to be that and try and find a place where you can bring benefits. Uh, or, or as I often say to people, I like to find places that bring joy to the individual and benefit to the organization. 
uh, I'm hopeful that where I'm at here at the FCC, my joy of actually trying to take on nearly impossible tasks uh, in a uh, challenging environment will actually bring benefit to the public. Uh, but we'll see. If not, I can go somewhere else. In some respects, I'm sort of like a, uh, again, an entrepreneur in the public sector as opposed to the private sector. You try it and see what works and you go on. I think in terms of what citizens can do is we deserve the government we get. So if, if the public is not asking these questions of, you know, how can we improve the system? How can we change the system? If it, all it is is just it's really difficult, it's really hard, we've resigned, just cut it and everything like that, then we're not looking for answers. And I often tell my team, I'm always happy to engage with them and actually sort through things, but at the end of the day, I want us all to be problem solvers, not problem holders. And so my question for the for everybody, private sector, uh, citizens, as well as uh, private industry is, how can we be problem solvers together in this? Because if we don't, I'm very worried that in five or ten years, other countries where they have a dictatorship or an oligarchy, which can be much more efficient at making decisions, not necessarily right decisions, but it can be much more efficient, will demonstrate that that is a superior model than representative democracy, and then where will we be as a country? And I think it's, if we really embrace representative democracy, it's up, up to trying to figure out how can we have checks and balances and at the same time have a system that is responsive, resilient, and adaptive. So your uh, reference, so it sounds like your reference point is are the activities that you're engaging in uh, driving a meaningful impact to your external constituency. Yes, exactly. And I think that's, I mean, and, and FCC has that sort of, it's, it's always had that unique advantage because back in 1934 when they wrote the Telecommunications Act, it says to work with the private sector. I mean, that was an explicit thing they asked us to do. Not every government agency necessarily has that same sort of explicit connection, but I think we need to find that because in today's age of always-on Internet connections, there is that availability to interact with people. I mean, as you know, I mean, I, I try to be available through Twitter. I try to be available through blogs. I try to be available for comments. There's that always-on connectivity, and so we don't have to have everything be opaque or centralized in D.C. I mean, the only reason why D.C. was created in the 1800s was because it took about two or three days for a message to arrive by horseback from New York. And that's no longer the case now in the 21st century. And so understanding that, I mean, nearly everybody who I work with in government are here because they are passionate and they care. They could have picked a job that probably would have paid a whole lot more somewhere else and maybe would not have had many hours, but they picked it because they really want to make a difference. They're all trying to figure out how do they navigate the different constraints we've been given to make sure there isn't a rise of a king-like individual but at the same time, how do we best engage the public sector to sort of become advocates for, yes, we recognize the world is changing, we need to change with it. So the, uh, so what are your primary focus points? It sounds like failing, failing fast, to use that kind of <laughs> jargon, um, smaller, iterative, agile-style projects, testing things out, seeing how they work, and if they work, you continue. If they don't work, you, you change course. T tell us a little bit about that style. Sure. Um, I think the biggest thing I try to encourage is understand the context in which you're operating, and then that, that helps you understand the needs of the different stakeholders you're bringing, and have a plan that can be adapted. I mean, I'm all for failing fast. I'm all for trying different things. Aim for a star and at least know that star that you're aiming for and make adjustments along the way and to be aware of that context. Um, literally, I had on my second day that I arrived at the FCC, 
I had a, a bureau arrive, and I won't name the technology, but they came in and they said, we want this latest technology X. And I said, okay, can you tell me why? And they said, well, it just got out. And I was like, okay, but how do you intend to use it? And they said, well, we thought maybe about this, thought maybe about this, we're not quite sure. And I said, tell you what, I'm willing to spend some of my resources to have a contractor work with you to actually storyboard your needs. And if we can storyboard your needs, then we can understand more what you're aiming for and whether that's the best technology or not. And they were all for it. They were a little bit skeptical, but you know, given it was me spending my dollars to actually try and understand their needs better, they were for it. And then within 30 days, we had that storyboard. It actually had us reach consensus. And then that allowed us to move forward together as to what we're trying to look for. Um, and so I think it's the idea of have a vision, but be open to course corrections along the way, and definitely be aware of your context that you're operating in, because that'll determine whether you need to be managing friction on this side or this side, or, or how do you manage the friction of change? Because there will be friction, um, but make it something that actually is manageable and that everybody survives. And how, what's the implication for that on these large government, government IT projects that involve system integrators uh, that ju just seem to fail right and left? I would try to avoid them at all costs. <laughs> so what, is it, uh, what exactly is it that you would try to avoid? Um, any project that is aiming for a result in a year or longer uh, gives me caution because technology is changing faster than that. And so instead, can you break it into chunks or into phases or to modular components that you say, we're going to get this modular component out now. We'll then see how we're doing. We'll do another modular component after that. Um, the other thing that I try to do is, is I think a lot of times people who are not IT in nature come up with proposals that if you had an IT person at the table as a partner would be much better. Um, oftentimes government, because the policymakers are not technologists, maybe we'll ask for something that, you know, I want X specifications delivered by Y date, which immediately has wedded you to a waterfall approach because you've already defined the requirements, you've already defined the date. And as we all know, waterfall is very challenging in today's environment. And so if had a technologist been at the table with that policy person, maybe it could be more of a conversation of, well, maybe we do this in phases. Maybe it's initially you just try to get people to sign up for the system or at least say they're interested, and then you roll out phases and you contact them when it's available in their area. I think that's more of the sort of agile adoption of what we can do that still makes the policymakers get what they want within a phase period of time. But if you're going to specify both the requirements and the date that you want it by, you've now locked us into a waterfall approach, and that's very dangerous to do in today's changing environments. So I had a meeting yesterday with some state officials, and we were talking about this set of issues. And we said to them that uh, we, we recommended basically what you're saying, go for shorter projects, make sure that each segment of the project has a defined, useful, deliverable, ensure that the technologists are working with the, uh, the business people, and so forth. And their response to this was pretty interesting. They said, you know, the state is biased against change and innovation. It's biased <laughs> against change. Right. And so the, so the very notion of doing what you're describing, it was just, like, impossible. Right. Well, I, I, I have been in circumstances like that, and my recommendation is hopefully there are some folks that are advocating change for the good, and, you know, we deserve the government we get. And so if no one's actually bringing this up and actually messaging it, 
then we deserve the government we get. But I, I, I've been in those circumstances where they hire you and they say, look, I want you to be innovative, but don't disrupt anything. And you're like... Yeah, make lots of change, <laughs> but don't change anything. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that's when you have to point out to people that we may have to reach a better understanding here of what exactly you want. And if you're really not looking for any real change, I may not be the right person for you. Um, uh, again, I guess I like those impossible circumstances where uh, you know, you're the underdog. But I think it's the, it's the art of trying to figure out where can you, can you bring joy and benefit to the organization and where can it tolerate it? And if you're finding it's not the right place, then maybe the situation has to get worse before it gets better. I mean, I'm sad to say that. I'd like to be proactive and actually prevent a train wreck. But I've often been accused of, I guess, uh, there's what the Greeks call Cassandra syndrome, where you can see the future and you can see where the train's going, but unfortunately nobody really else can see it, even though you try your best. Um, the good news is I feel like, again, we've got a chairman in addition to four commissioners that really do get the, the importance of IT here. And so hopefully we'll be able to make a difference. Um, but in terms of that case of that state, um, what could you do to make things more visible or transparent to the public so that maybe the public would actually sort of become those advocates for the fact that, look, we do want you to be innovative. We do recognize that innovative means disruptive and change. But if we always did what we always did, if we do what we always did, we're going to get what we always got. And are we happy with what we're getting? Yeah, but the transparency, I mean, it's really hard for, for some of these folks to, for some of the, the watchdog folks to drive transparency because, you know, you have the large system integrators that are embedded so tightly with the people in the agencies. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking in general. So, so how, do you, how do you even begin to drive transparency? Right. Um... And it's also complicated. Oh, it is. It is. Trust me. <laughs> it is. Uh, I guess the question is, is who holds the problem? And, and if you can identify who holds the problem, then you identify who's going to ultimately be responsible for solving it. And, and in this case, I mean, I don't know the specifics about the state, but it sounds like the state holds the problem. The question is, do they feel compelled to fix it yet or not? And if they don't, then I would say the public holds the challenge of encouraging and coaxing the state to fix it. If that helps, yeah, it's um, it's it's well, it's just a very hairy problem, uh, and and I'm very struck with the comment that you just made, uh, trying to, especially for a CIO to say, where can you bring joy and benefit to the organization? Yeah, I it's mean, a very unusual CIO point of view. It's an unusual point of view for anybody, but especially for a CIO. Well, I mean, again, I, I trace it back. My father was a Methodist minister. I realized I've become a Methodist minister in government, except instead of church, I'm actually doing technology. So it's sort of my advocacy and my role. And what advice can you offer to CIOs who are struggling themselves with this issue of disruption and wanting to push things forward, but having the organization just push back, or having senior management that is not willing to accept disruption? Right. Um, that's a great question. I think the advice I would say is first, if you find you really want to create change, sort of sit down and draw a line on a piece of paper and on one side say, who are your potential advocates and your potential supporters of change and what do they want? And then on the other side, who are your potential resistors to change and why are they resisting it? Um, and then sort of borrow a, book, uh, a play from uh, President Lincoln. I mean, when, when President Lincoln assembled his cabinet, he intentionally included both people that were for him as well as people that were his opponents because he wanted to hear their views. Uh, and there's a wonderful phrase that says, um, you know, 
I do not, you know, I hate that man. I must get to know them better. If someone doesn't, if someone is not on your support base, don't take that as a case to say, well, they must just be wrong or they must just be resistant to change. Bring them into a bigger tent and say, what are you really looking for? What is actually, you know, your motivation? And see if you can find a way of actually providing what they want while at the same time helping to move where the organization needs to go. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing that any pastor or minister of a church has to do is the reality is the congregation's really in charge. Your job is through narrative and understanding the different stories, trying to help them move in a direction that you would like them to go. But you've got to be cautious because if you take them too far or too fast, you may find yourself pushed out. So, so is your job about technology or collaboration? Both. <laughs> in fact, I would say my job is is encouraging humans, so it's actually humans first and foremost, to best use technology to collaborate and actually achieve the goals, in this case of the FCC, but wherever I've been, it's achieve the goals of the organization that I'm with. And is the bulk of your, do you spend more time dealing with tech stuff or dealing with people issues? Um, that's a great question. I would say, I think throughout the day I spend time with technology interwoven. Um, I mean, I'm more than happy to get into discussion as to whether, you know, Node.js versus Foundation, what's the best, you know, thing that we should be using for our UI and our code. But if that's all I'm doing, then I'm missing the boat. What it really should be is more understanding what is, in this case, the business side, the government side, the public sector side, what are they really looking for? And how can we best help them get to where they need to go and at the same time have that enterprise view? Um, and so uh, whether it's thinking in four or five dimensions, I don't know, but I think any CIO needs to think in the dimensions of humans, technology, as well as the culture change you're trying to do. Now, when you talk and when you tweet, you're inter interweaving technical discussions with technologies, historical te technology discussions, uh, historical quotes, poetry, photographs. So obviously you're, you have a, a very well-rounded background. Uh, what does that say about you and your role as a CIO and what is that, what's that about? I think it's, that's a great question. I think it's, it's interjecting humor and making sure not everything is always a technical discussion because you've got to show some humanness to the side and also not to take oneself too seriously. Um, I often tell my team when I meet with them and actually I, for the first week and second week I was here when I was meeting with people they were sort of surprised. I said, I'm not going to have all the answers. In fact, anyone who claims they have all the answers in technology, they're probably got a little bit of hubris. I'm going to have blind spots. I'm going to have things I'm going to miss. But I'm going to count on all of you to point out if you think I'm missing something and explain why. Please bring data. Data is always helpful. Um, but I'm not going to assume that I know everything just because I'm CIO. And so the same thing when I'm on Twitter. I'm trying to actually as much as possible within those texts and photos uh, demonstrate that I don't want to take myself too seriously and I want to see what other folks, you know, have to both either share with me, inform me, or if there's humor that we can find in this uh, interesting challenge that we all have together uh, with, with sort of evolving the public sector to include citizens, to include public-private partnerships in addition to government workers. So you're trying, so, so really across the board, what I'm reading is you're trying to take a, a broad-based perspective of which technology is one kind of interwoven component but which plays on the larger stage of what the what the constituency goals are, organizational goals are, and the the mechanism to achieve those goals. Exactly, you said it much better than I did. Yes. Uh, 
before we go, I, I, I have to ask you about the notion of uh, IT and the CIO reaching out to uh, externally to constituents and facing constituent issues. Historically, IT has been very inward-facing, and clearly you're outward-facing. So maybe do you have a few thoughts about that? Yes, I think it's it's representative of two things. I think I think any organization needs their IT to start thinking externally in addition to internally because, again, the nature of the Internet is blurring these lines between what was internal or what, what was external. I mean, the whole point of social media, cloud, platforms is your inside is now your outside and your outside is now your inside. It's, 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 it's much harder to draw that line even though you may try and draw that firewall and DMZ on the diagram. And so I think a CIO has to be thinking externally in addition to internally. The other thing, though, is public sector as a whole, and, and, and I often say it's public service of which government is a part of, but it's much larger than that. Public service, again, with the Internet, we don't have to be constrained by thinking that we have to deliver messages on horseback between New York and D.C. We really should be empowering everybody. And so I, I find myself sort of privileged to be at both these, these, these stages of the CIO should be focusing both inwardly and outwardly, and equally at the same time, public service should be thinking beyond just those of us who are actually serving day-to-day how can we involve the do-it-yourself community, uh, citizens that are willing to write code, as well as the private sector? Well, you know, it's uh, it's unfortunately that time where we have to end the show. There's a lot that I wanted to still talk with you about. We we didn't talk about analytics, informatics, any any of those topics. But I hope you'll come back and join us another time. It would be my pleasure, Michael. Always happy to join back with you, and we can we can talk about Aruba when uh, Valar gets back and see if he brings back any uh, candies for uh, Valentine's Day for you. Yes, and and speaking of my co-host Vala Afshar, who is not here today because he is in Aruba, if anybody in the audience wants to take this opportunity to taunt him, it's the <laughs> perfect time because he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> And so with that, I, I, on, on behalf of both Vala, the absent today, Vala Afshar, and myself, uh, offer a uh, grateful thank you and appreciation to David Bray, who is the CIO of the, of the Federal Communications Commission. David, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. Well, it's my pleasure, Michael. Thanks again for having me. Okay, and I hope everybody has a great week, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.